If you like radio that isn't bought and paid for by the usual bad guys, please subscribe to Truth Jihad Radio. You can go to truthjihad.com or you can visit my substack at kevinbarrett.substack.com. Welcome back. This is the second hour of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, waging the all-out struggle for truth on the Internet airwaves on revolution.radio, the free speech haven. And uh, please do support revolution.radio by going to their website, and you can donate and find other ways to support the station. And my website is truthjihad.com, which takes you to the Icelandic site, which is relatively impervious to attacks from the bad guys who would like to shut me up. And uh, you could also check out my substack, kevinbarrett.substack.com. I try to bring on the most interesting folks who are calling it the way it is, or at least giving us plausible, intelligent interpretations of what's really going on in the world. And our guest this evening, Ramin Mazahari, is definitely in that company. Ramin has written, well, three books that I know about. The most recent is France's Yellow Vests, Western Repression of the West's Best Values. It's a wonderful uh, recapitulation of the history of French socialism over the past two centuries, and that's the first part of the book. The second part gets into the nitty-gritty of the Yellow Vest movement, one of the most inspiring political movements ever. And Ramin was right there in the thick of it, covering it for press TV. And uh, this is a really, really good book. So, hey, welcome, Ramin Mazahari. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks so much for having me, Kevin. Big fan. Yeah, likewise. So, yeah, you're you're kind of my go-to guy for explaining to Western leftists, uh, why everything they know about Iran is wrong. And maybe we can talk about that later. Uh, but with getting into your Yellow Vest book, this is this is really a, a, an interesting analysis. Uh, and I don't know how much we want to talk about your historical take on socialism in France. It definitely resonated with me. I, you know, I had to study France a bit for my MA in French literature. And at the time, I was a card-carrying leftist. Now I've burned that card, but I'm not entirely unsympathetic to some of the, some of the ideals. And uh, so, you, you know, I was really interested to see your view that Napoleon Bonaparte was, in fact, a kind of a socialist hero, which is not the kind of view that we see very much in the mainstream uh, discourse anymore. Um, so I think there's maybe you could start by sort of giving us a sense of how you, you know, you're a socialist. How, how do you view socialism? Oh, yeah. Why was Napoleon a socialist? And then what are the ideals of socialism that can set the stage for uh, for the yellow vest? Well, you know, uh, it's, it's great that you have this uh, knowledge and uh, this deep uh, experience and understanding of France and that you also like the book, because I think that if you didn't, uh, that would really sort of be saying a lot. And I agree with what you're saying that you know, for example, chapter three, which is kind of where I tell people to start in case they don't want to start with uh, uh, the French Revolution. Uh, chapter three is titled Modern Political History Makes No Sense If Napoleon Is Not a Leftist Revolutionary. And, uh, you know, I can I can come back to that. But just to sort of explain the, the way that this works, this book works, is that uh, 
you know, nobody covered more Yellow Vest demonstrations in English or French uh, than I did. I was there, you know, practically every Saturday. And I eventually, you know, realized that I had a, a obligation to sort of end the Western propaganda about the Yellow Vest and really sort of tell their story because they were uh, slandered as, uh, you know, racist, xenophobic, Luddite. Uh, right-wingers, something uh, akin to uh, American deplorables who support Trump or people in England uh, who supported uh, Brexit. And we knew from literally, you know, not even one month into the Yellow Vest demonstration, we, you know, researchers were, you know, academics were saying we have we have studied them. And they're really not right wing at all. They're 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 actually on what I would call the sort of true left uh, in France, and their their ideas were for, for for people who know modern France, they were very very similar. These academics and researchers said very similar to uh, Jean Luc Mélenchon, who is you know invariably described as a leftist firebrand, but who's really just kind of more of a you know you know standard standard leftist. So, anyways, uh, he's like the French Bernie Sanders. Exactly. That's uh, that's a very good comparison. You know, personally, I like Mélenchon, but he's just, you know, after, you know, living in France since, since 2009, you know, not enough. He's just he's just sort of un unelectable. He's just somebody who rubs so many people the wrong way. And of course, France is, uh, you know, very often a imperialist and extremely conservative country. So even Mélenchon is too, too far to the left for them, uh, much as Bernie Sanders is too far to the left and who's not really a leftist uh, here in the uh uh, United States. I'm actually here covering the U.S. midterms, and I'm based out of Chicago right now. So, you know, the book, you know, I started saying, okay, I have to end Western propaganda on the yellow vest, and then I, I realized, you know, I've been, you know, I'm, you know, as someone who's trying to be a decent journalist, you know, I've had to learn a lot about French history and learn the French, well, the French language, and try and really, you know, comprehend where they are coming from, and then, you know, being a daily on the on the ground reporter, you know, you have to be able to, you know, uh, understand what people people are saying. So I realized, well, then we have to talk about, you know, the the the, the root of the yellow vests with the return of liberalism in the uh, late 70s and 80s. And then it's like, oh, well, then we also have to talk about, for example, you know, the you know, the sort of closest comparable protests uh, in France. You have to go back to the 1930s. I have to explain that. You know, uh, then I have to, oh, I have to, I have to explain about the Paris Commune. You know, people don't really uh, understand, you know, the the significance of that, and that, and and how, you know, French liberal politicians colluded with the invading Germans with with uh, with uh, Bismarck to lay siege to their own capital. I mean, just that one sentence right there should sort of make everybody's ears uh, sort of. Uh, you know, prick up and say, wait a minute, how can these people be good if they're if they're colluding with an occupying foreign army to lay to lay a four month siege to their own capital? So, OK, I, I can talk about that. Oh, and then there's Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, who nobody really knows about, it seems, in the West, even though uh, he was Napoleon's nephew and uh, leader of France for about I think it was about 23 years. And then you got to go back to 1848, the revolutions of 1848, and they all failed. Everywhere but France. So why? Wow. So we have to call those the counter revolutions of 1848. And then we get to Napoleon and then at the start of it all, uh, you know, the French Revolution. So, uh, and so, so you've given us this narrative of kind of French as a revolutionary country that uh, it's pretty ironic, isn't it, that it 
has lost that now and and that the yellow vest there are no french intellectuals who are revolutionary anymore really the yellow, the yellow vests who are just ordinary folks are carrying that torch you're absolutely right you know and you just said it right there i mean it's always been the ordinary folk who have carried any popular progressive revolution we're talking about 1789 france uh 1917 russia uh, 1949, uh, China, 1959, Cuba, 1979, Iran. I mean, you know, these five revolutions, they were all pushed forward by the people. They, 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 they were not top down in the slightest. They were not just coups. They were not just a different king getting into power. They were not just replacing, uh, as in France in 1848, replacing a king with a, uh, with a tiny parliament uh, you know, composed by the one percenters. So, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, living in Europe for, uh, you know, 12, 13 years, I really sort of appreciated the fact that, you know, France is a revolutionary country. They have that heritage and the average person holds on to it very much. And, for example, Napoleon, even in France, they are told to have a very, a very ambiguous uh, view of him, even though... You know, like like the, you know, and the whole point of my book was not to talk about the important topics in, you know, French history since 1789. It was to try and bring something new to the table. And the idea that Napoleon is a leftist revolutionary is, is almost verboten. Well, then, you know, there's another way to look at that period of French history, 1789 until 1814. There were seven different coalition wars in Europe to destroy the French Revolution. And that's what I refer to it, you know, in this book. I call it, the, you know, the, the seven wars to destroy the French Revolution. Because for 25 years, every other country in Europe was trying so hard to topple the French Revolution, which had these, you know, this undeniable goal to, to overturn the pyramid, to put the bottom of the bottom of the pyramid back on top. Like Cuba, like China, like the USSR, like Russia, like Eastern Europe. Uh, and so what, you know, you have to read, the, read the book to, you know, really sort of read it in full. But when you, when you, when you come from this point of view that, oh, wait a minute, the French Revolution was a good thing and their enemies were absolute monarchists. They were the 1%. Then all of a sudden it's, well, if Napoleon was just another, you know, far right, monarchist, absolutist dictator, why were they trying to just take him down uh, for, you know, uh, talking what, uh, 1799 to 1814? You know, I mean, they, it, it's, it's normal in Western scholarship to divide, you know, that period, 1789 to 1814, to divide it into two periods, the French Revolutionary Wars and then the Napoleonic Wars. There's no need to do that. What Napoleon was, to just give a, you know, play, you know, give a little spoiler, he was a middle-of-the-road revolutionary. He was still on the left of his time. He was friends with the Robespierre's, uh, you know, but he was not somebody who was as radical as, uh, you know, Baboeuf or, uh, you know, uh, uh, Marat, but he was vetted by the revolution, by this popular revolution over and over and over. And then to sort of, you know, uh, include him with his nephew about uh, about uh, we're talking 30 years later, uh, 1851. 
Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, the big difference between both these guys, the ultimate rejoinder is to point out that these guys were the only elected monarchs. They were actually elected by millions and millions of people and by and, and this this electorate would not be reached in many parts of Europe uh, until the First World War. So that's kind of how far advanced France was, you know, you know, for really, really quite, quite, uh, quite some time. So Napoleon, it just doesn't make sense. You know, nobody can explain to us why they would why they would be why all of Europe would be attacking France uh, if Napoleon was just another, you know, of all of his peers. You know, I, I think that's a great point. Your, your uh, reframing of this story makes a lot of sense. It kind of simplifies things in a way. We're often told that the, the revolution sort of spun out of control and, you know, the, the, the executions and the torture and the, uh, the terror and all of that went, was out of control. And then along came this dictator, Napoleon. And so now instead of a revolutionary country, you had a, just this uh, aggressive dictatorship. And that narrative usually tries to portray Napoleon as the uh, aggressor, as kind of a military uh, uh, dictator and aggressor. And so that's uh, that, that's often the way it's been portrayed. But you point out in the book that these Napoleonic wars were, for the most part, actually defensive wars and mm -hmm. that much of the, uh, you know, the countries that were adopting uh, the you know, Napoleonic system and sort of joining with the French at that time, it was actually kind of a grassroots thing for the most part. So this was you're reframing this as, as essentially the Napoleonic Wars and French Revolutionary Wars, both all of this. These are all sort of defensive wars by the French Revolution to defend the ideals of the revolution. That's not that different from, you know, Victor Hugo in some of some moments that view, but it's not one that is promoted much by the mainstream anymore. It's not it's not promoted because it's not in line with the, you know, liberal d democratic idea that there is this technocratic, deserve, you know, deserved elite, which, you know, which which should be running the show. This, you know, top one percent and their toadies, uh, you know, you're ex you know, for example, the Napoleonic Code. I mean, why is it even called that? It's you know, it's it's because of the great manism inherent in liberal democracy and, of course, monarchy, you know, the. The more accurate title uh, for this code is the French Revolutionary Code. And this is something that spread that, you know, people heard about it in Italy, in the Netherlands. Uh, and, and, there, and there was this sort of there, there was this very real grassroots revolution uh, in, in these areas to advance the ideals, not of Napoleon, but of the French uh, of the French Revolution. Last thing I'll say is they love to talk about. Napoleon as a military genius and, you know, put him up there with, uh, you know, Frederick the Great and, you know, well, it's it's really easy to say, you know, let's do a, a very bold flanking move. What's hard to do is to find the people who have the spirit, the ardor, the willingness to to, you know, perform these bold military campaigns to march for miles on end to surprise people. And the reason the French peasant did that is because they were committed revolutionaries. And why were they committed? Because they they wanted to end feudalism. And that's, of course, what the French Revolution was all about. And it would take decades for the rest of Europe uh, you know, to, you know, to finally accept this. And it really wasn't until World War One that the I that 
the bulk of the ideals of the French Revolution became sort of commonplace. And then really took into, until the you know, 50s and 60s, especially if we're talking about rights for uh, women. So it's you know, starting with, you know, Napoleon, there needs to be this whole sort of, you know, realization that just as the, the West, just as liberal, liberal democracies do nothing but denigrate leftist heroes like Khomeini, Mao, Castro, Stalin, they did. They have done the exact same thing to Napoleon, and that's what I think a lot of uh, uh, your listeners can, you know, they can really just kind of, get, you know, you know, get interested in it by that. Napoleon was the most admired, the most interesting person of the 19th century, and it's not because he was just this, you know, you know, bloody dictator. It's because he incarnated the middle of the road of the French Revolution. And here's sort of, you know, the last thing I'll say. For example, when, uh, you know, former Iranian president Rafsanjani died, there were hundreds of thousands of people in the streets. And this is a guy who was who is portrayed, in, you know, absurdly as a neoliberal. People who know Iran, they will say, you know, Rafsanjani is, you know, too far to the right. He's too close to to uh, business interests. Yeah, they, they call him an oligarch. They call him an oligarch. OK, but see, it's like, you know, he was on he's or Deng Xiaoping and other people will, you know, it's the same thing here. They will say that that, that they uh, we can say that they're on the right of the, of a revolutionary political spectrum but that puts them way on the left of the of, of the general liberal democratic spectrum so Rafsanjani is more leftist than Bernie Sanders Deng Xiaoping is more of a committed uh committed socialist than uh Jean-Luc Mélenchon Rafsanjani and and then Napoleon was the same thing he wasn't he wasn't Marat. He wasn't Robespierre. But we have to remember that, you know, it was the, the, the French Revolution is the start of political modernity in that, you know, in 1789, they weren't even talking about, you know, you know, free education. You know, they weren't even they weren't even talking about free health care. These ideas didn't come in until, you know, five, six, seven years later. So to fault somebody like Napoleon for not having, for example, you know, the modern leftist ideal of, you know, free health care for everybody in 1789 when he was putting his his life on the line to defend the French Revolution is to really hold them to this sort of impossible standard. But, you, but you know, the average centrist in, in the West, the average uh, Western historian, they're not interested in in, you know, being honest that, uh, you know, uh, about who were the real opponents and what Napoleon really fought for and what leftism really stands for. And, le and we don't really know what, you know, modern leftism stands for until we look at 1789. And then, you know, so starting with and, and, and then today, it's really sort of it's really very, really, uh, you know, very, very similar. The yellow vests are the most you know, successful and certainly the most oppressed leftist movement in the West in at least 50 years. There's no comparison between the repression of the yellow vest to May 1968 in France to, uh, you know, Kent State, you know, uh, in the, you know, the, you know, murder of, you know, four students. It, it, it was just uh, so it's we have to see these these parallels because the yellow vests, they are fighting for the same things that we would that, that the French were fighting for in 1789 in the Napoleonic era in 1848 with their only successful revolution in the revolution uh, of re revolutions of 1848. In the failed, you know, uh, you know, uh, Paris Commune, 
they are talking about the same things. They want, they want a decent standard of living. The working, the formerly serfs, formerly serf class, which is now the working poor class, which is the best description of the Elevest, they are the working poor class. They, they don't want to be the working poor. They don't want to be serfs. They don't want to be neo-serfs. You know, you, you, I'm sure that, you know, you read a lot about now about neo-feudalism. I mean, that's what basically liberalism is. They, the Yellow Vest fought for a decent life for working people. And that's what, you know, in France they've been fighting for since 1789. And that is special, you know, and people are going to say I'm biased because, you know, I live there. Well, there's just not that many successful uh, enduring revolutions uh, for the past 250 years, and you know places like you know Denmark, they just can't they just can't claim it. You know Greece, they just can't claim it. Uh, Qatar, they just can't claim it. But you know France really can, and the yellow vests are so uh, important in in Western history. And I just you know this book became twice as long as I as I expected. But you know we we. We have to see these patterns because even if even if you don't believe in socialism, by reading this book and looking at how the yellow vests show that the pan-European project, which is the apex of modern liberalism, how it has done nothing but bring austerity, uh, police repression, repression of protests and, and economic failure, this failure of liberalism is echoing back, you know, through, for, you know, since at least 1848 that, uh, you know, uh, uh, that, you know, at least in France. So we have to tie these, these, these threads together because even if you aren't in favor of socialism, if you're telling me that liberalism has failed, I have 175 years of French history, which can prove me wrong, and I have the yellow vests also, which are sort of the ultimate rejoinder to anybody who says, you know, liberal democracies are less brutal and more democratic and more open. So even if you're not pro-socialist, if you're going to be pro-liberal democracy, you know, pro-liberalism, you have to explain why there, why there were seven coalition wars against the French Revolution, whose ideals now are completely commonplace. So don't you think it's ironic, Ramin, that the yellow vests have been slandered as uh, kind of uh, neo-Nazi, fascist, right-wing, uh, et cetera? So it seems like if the working people stand up for their, their own interests these days, like the Canadian truckers are another example, and even, even some of the people in the Trump movement, although uh, I don't think they're nearly as aware of where their true interests lie, maybe as the yellow vest, but it's it's interesting that any working people anywhere who stand up for their own interests uh, seem to be slandered as right wingers by this establishment that poses as sort of left leaning. But you get right down to it, and this so called left leaning establishment of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and so on, that's going all out for various kinds of identity politics and posing as being uh, much more to the left than those papers were a couple of generations ago, those people are actually supporting the, the oligarchy and its privileges and increasing inequality. And when the poor people and the working people rise up for change, they're being called, you know, right wingers and, and Nazis and fascists. Uh, what, how, can, how can they get away with that kind of misportrayal? How, how did the media get away with misportraying the yellow vest this way? Well, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying, and I think that we just have to draw a difference between how the yellow vests were portrayed in the French language media and in the English language media. What you're saying about the how they were portrayed in the English language media is completely correct. 
They were lumped together with uh, pro-Trump. Brexit, and, Trump. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it was all, all at the same time, you know. I mean, 2016 for Brexit and for Trump, and then uh, uh, 2018, the start of the Yellow Vest movement. So, you know, historically, it's the same, same period in time. Uh, but the Yellow Vest, as I was saying uh, earlier, there was no doubt within France that, that these were the war- working poor class who were claiming the heritage of the French Revolution and who were not right wingers, you know. Uh, now we can, I, you know, we can talk about deplorables in the U.S. and you know Brexiteers in the U.K. Uh, about if they're left or right, and I would absolutely not say, or the truckers in Canada, I would absolutely not say and not agree with the mainstream portrayal of them as these, you know, far right uh, fascists. But that's what, in the English language media, they did to the Yellow Vests, and it worked. It worked because, you know, you know, this is, you know, there's no, you know, powerful or, you know, powerful reaching state media. Uh, there's no, you know, in these Anglophone countries, there's no, you know, and then the place, you know, like the BBC that has it, it's, you know, totally biased. But in the French language media, and this is the critical point, uh, that portrayal of them as far right people didn't didn't really fly. The main thing that they used in in the French language media is that these are a bunch of berserkers. They called them casseurs, and that means uh, you know uh, to break something. A bunch of breakers, a bunch of wreckers, vandals. And you know, I would talk with you know union leaders, and they would you know echo the same thing. They would say that these people they have no uh, ideology; they're just bitter. That they that they haven't achieved, and you know all of this sort of classist nonsense. Uh, but the, and you know it it didn't it didn't really stick in France. And the sort of proof of that is is that you had, you know, I I believe don't quote me on this. It's in the book, but I I believe half of the people who you know uh, who protested with the LFS they had never been at a protest before, and. They lasted six months from November 2017 until uh, after the brutal May Day repression on May 1st. And I have seen brutal, brutal, uh, you know, uh, French repression of protests, you know, for for 12 years. Uh, the average person, you know, it, it, it was after that repression, after they put in place the anti vest law that guaranteed fines, that guaranteed uh, illegal searches that guarantee that uh, you know people are going to get fast tracked through through the court system. That what I'm trying to say is they they finally after six months scared the average person from protesting, and that's why the protests dwindled. But it took them six months because people knew that they weren't far right, uh, and they were protesting against anti-Semitism back in February. Uh, you know, when they started their what they called season two after the coronavirus pause in Paris at the head of their march uh, was a picture of a woman in a hijab and a corona mask. So they, they are not Islamophobic. They're not anti-Semitic. Uh, they're an extremely, I would say, patriotic movement. Uh, and, you know, if I had to use one word, it, it, it would be civic minded. You know, they just want to see. I mean, I mean, ultimately, the yellow vest comes down to the failure of the pan-European project. Uh, this version of it. You know, I'm not against uh, a united Europe necessarily, but 
and, and, and this is really sort of uh, the biggest surprise to me uh, in writing this book is that I went through all my, you know, all my daily reporting uh, since since 2009. And I had to I had to admit and I had to realize and I had to you know grasp the enormity of the failure of the European Union. You know, when I moved there, just to give you one sort of everyday example, it was a dollar sixty to a euro. Okay, and you look at it, you know, you know, twelve years later, and they're at basic, you know, basically parity. That's an enormous loss of power, uh, you know, uh, purchasing power for the average person. And the Ukraine uh, war isn't helping anything either. You know, I mean, that's just another example of how, uh, you know, European Union politicians are, you know, because they are liberal Democrats, they are, this is a liberal democracy, they're just not interested in protecting the average person. But, you know, like I was saying, you know, that the yellow vest, I, that I had covered so many, you know, violent protests. When the yellow vest started, I said, this is only 15, 20 percent worse than in 2016 against the labor code. And, you know, 2014, the railroad, uh, uh, railroad strikes, 2010, you know, raising of the retirement age. I mean, it's, you know, when that was really sort of, a, you know, very big surprise to me was to say that, oh, my God. You know, ever since 2009, which is when the Lisbon Treaty was forced through and became a core document uh, of the modern European Union. I mean, that's basically when it started. It's been nothing but catastrophe. And then, you know, we had the yellow vest and they had to stop because of because of, uh, you know, uh, uh, Corona. And now they went from Corona to Ukraine. I mean, it's just more catastrophe, more failure, uh, failure to provide economic stability, prosperity, and democracy. And we're talking about since since 2009. So, you know, when I kind of realized that, you know, that 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 the pan-European project is, you know, a huge victory for liberal democracy, it came about after the fall of the Soviet Union and, and, and the crisis of socialism. And the European, you know, pan-European project was supposed to bring democracy, prosperity, and stability to all of Europe. Uh, and for, for, for it to have failed, fallen flat on its face from 2009 when the, when, uh, when the EU and the Eurozone was the only macroeconomic bloc which refused to implement a recovery plan, because remember, we had a huge economic crisis back then. So they fell flat on their, uh, flat on their face from the beginning to, uh, you know, all through the age of austerity, you know, Corona, you know, they did, you know, whatever, everybody did good or bad. That's a, you know, uh, you know, different thing. And now the Ukraine war era, it's just nothing but, but failure. And the, yeah, it's a permanent state of emergency. And this, this takes us back to the Carl Schmidt theory that there's a kind of inherent defect in liberal parliamentary democracies that encourages uh, basically, you know, chaos and, and uh, the inability to get things done, the inability to solve real problems and the law, the lack of what Schmidt calls the truly political. And so here's where he, you know, he, he of course, argues that politics is the art of organized enmity. And so when you try to actually have a politics that's supposedly serving the people through parliamentary means, it's kind of guaranteed to failure. So you what you end up with is along comes somebody like like Hitler or along comes uh, COVID or and the Ukraine war creating a sort of a state of emergency 
which allows for exceptional kinds of repression, such as locking people down so they can't go out and protest anymore. Uh, and, and it seems to me that the West, as it kind of hits the limits of its parliamentary democracies and its liberalism, has been moving more and more into this kind of neocon Schmidt and, and Strauss inspired uh, using states of emergency to govern. Uh, 9-11, of course, inaugurated a permanent state of emergency here in the United States that has largely obliterated much of our Constitution. And we've had sort of one emergency after another since then. It's been it's it's now permanent. And, uh, you know, anybody outside the official limits is now kind of considered a terrorist, whether they're yellow vests or covid protesters or truckers or what have you. So you, you point out in your book that there's a kind of a connivance between liberalism and fascism. And, and I think that seems to be what we're seeing here. Yeah, you're exactly right, you know, about the, how the state of emergency was sort of pioneered by the U.S. after 9-11. And it got to France, I want to say, 2014 uh, with, uh, with uh, terrorist attacks. Uh, and, of course, all, the, all of these terrorists, the ones who are not crazy, they all explicitly said this is because uh, this is payback for France's involvement in places like Syria and Mali, especially. And of course, France is also was also involved very heavily in Libya, the Central African Republic. We can go on and on. Um, the ones who are not crazy and the false flaggers. Don't forget them. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I can tell you some stories about, you know, people telling me how the police try and, you know, and the, you know, secret services try to, you know, it, encourage crazy people to do crazy. You know, yeah, I, I don't know if you've seen my books. Uh, We're not Charlie Hebdo and another French false flag. But I, I kind of quickly collected all of the stuff that contradicted the official stories of those uh, 2015 terror events in France and put them together. And I, there's more than enough material to show that clearly the secret services were very much aware and probably in charge of those events. Well, you know, the Charlie Hebdo guys, they left their license in the getaway car. Yeah, so the throw down license in the getaway car. Oh, yeah. Throw oh. down your ID. Yeah. Well, I just think, you know, just to, you know, it's like a throw down passports at the trade center rubble. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, it's uh, I hear you. I totally hear you. And I think it's a totally valid point of view. And it's very important. Uh, and it's become more and more important, you know, with with Corona. And I'm referring to the idea of uh, governance uh, in a liberal democracy. We should stress uh, via a state of emergency. And I, I, uh, I just brought up Charlie Hebdo to, to point out to you that France changed dramatically after that, dramatically. Uh, so just like, you know, after 9-11, uh, after Charlie Hebdo and then the Bataclan attacks, France has, you know, been, been in a state of, uh, panic and emergencies similar to the, similar to the U.S. after 9-11. And we can't just blame Parliament. Because, you know, there's a parliament in Iran, there's a parliament in Cuba, there's a parliament in uh, China. The problem is not parliamentary democracy. It's it's who is filling, you know, who is filling these parliaments in Cuba. You have like, you know, uh, back in 2017 or 2018, you had a, a cobbler. A guy who fixed shoes to get elected to parliament. He's going to uh, understand what the what the working poor class needs. Uh, here in the United States, you know, I just covered the midterms and that was, you know, a total snooze fest. But it's millionaires and their super millionaire backers, you know, deciding who's going to run. Uh, so, 
Yeah, you know, I, uh, it's, uh, you know, going back to your point about uh, you know states of emergency, that's an enormous, enormously important uh, concept, and I talk about it a bit in this book. Uh, but certainly, you could really talk a lot about it because it's just becoming so so important. And I just bring this back to say, you know, now back in Europe, you know, uh, it's the emergency against Ukraine that is, you know, I mean, I I was in Europe. Paris is, you know, I was in Paris, which is the heart of, uh, you know, heart of Europe. It's the heart of the continent, and they're always at the forefront of European diplomacy. I've been covering, you know, the, what's going on in Ukraine since since 2014. So this is another fabricated emergency. It hasn't been an, it wasn't an emergency, you know, for a long time when it was Russian people getting killed. So it's just sort of a another absurd emergency. Yeah, yeah, and that neoliberal governing class, the the Western uh, hegemonic class uh, that's starting to lose its grip slowly on the planet is is behind pretty much all of this, and they're certainly behind what's going on in Iran too. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that because you know the Western media is it's not just one sided; it's actually probably pretty much run by the same people who are creating the uh, the chaos and violence in Iran. And then they're, of course, misportraying it as noble protests for women's rights and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, maybe you talk a little bit about the Iranian revolution uh, being in some ways similar to these other popular revolutions and uh, how the the way that has been misportrayed in the West. Well, you know, all popular revolutions from the French Revolution to the Soviet to the Cuban to the Chinese, they're all misportrayed. And I will I really want to do get to that, but I do want to ask you something because you know, we were talking about uh talking about this book and you know, you were talking about how the book incorporates some some, you know, common leftist uh thinkers like Marx, like Trotsky. Trotsky yeah, lots of Trotsky. Yeah, you know, Trotsky, he was great in analyzing France uh of the 1930s and showing, you know, who's the fascist and reminding that, uh, that 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 these you know liberal Democrats, these you know liberalists, that they are just as bad. So I'm interested in kind of your take, you know, uh, going back to uh, you know 1848 and the Second Republic when France finally overthrew the restoration of the king and they put in liberal democracy. And then Marx, he's so great on France and the way that he just excoriates. The, you know, Fran, uh, you know, France from 1848 to 1851, and then you know, it was the first example of a liberal democracy. And then Louis Napoleon Bonaparte gets voted in with millions of votes. I mean, yeah, I'm just wondering, didn't it strike you that Marx's complaints uh, in 1848 France, the birth of modern liberalism, that they're so similar to what we hear today? Yeah, it is almost like, uh, you know, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose in, in a lot of respects. And so, yeah, liberalism has been failing for so long, uh, but it keeps popping up. I mean, you can't kill it, right? I mean, they, nobody could ever drive a stake through its heart. And, you know, so it makes you wonder if, you know, maybe, you know, Fukuyama's crazy idea that liberalism is the be all end all and it's the end of history and nothing's ever going to be different for liberalism. Well, I don't, I don't know about that. But I mean, how many of these cycles are we going to see where liberalism, you know, fails and, and, you know, gets supplanted or maybe, you know, improved or whatever. But then it just keeps keeps coming back as a, a, a tool of oligarchy. I mean, it's just really sort of uh, amazing. And then it's, you know, the, you know, here or 
you know, in, in, in Europe, there was supposed to be this new system that was going to, you know, really change things and improve things starting in 2009. And it's the exact same complaints that we heard in 1848, in 1871, uh, pre-World War I. The 1930s. And really the one thing I, I, I really try to stress in this book is that the only time liberalism has ever had sort of any sort of sustained success was after the bloodlettings of World War I and World War II. And, you know, they call it the 30 glorious years in France for 1945 to, to 75. And that's when, the, you know, liberalism was so discredited that they had to implement uh, some of the most important ideas of socialist democracy. They had yeah, to start- that's right. Eisenhower was is you know he was way to the left of Bernie Sanders, right? Ninety percent marginal income tax rate, uh, uh, college education around the United States free. That was just ending, you know, in the kind of Reagan era, post Reagan era when I I got to California after my uh, my first round of college uh, back in what was that like a late seventies or you know early eighties. So yeah, that everything changed you know massively. We you know the U.S. was far more quote-unquote socialist which really just means that the you know the infrastructure is being used for ordinary people and the wealth wasn't all being siphoned off by the super rich um so yeah it's 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 funny how that's uh, that's happened that uh, it's amazing right uh, and i and i think that you know you you you, you kind of just hit the nail on the on the head there you know uh, by adopting you know values and the concepts like social security healthcare, using infrastructure for the average person uh, the West was able to do really great from 45 to 75. But then, as you're saying, starting around, you know, uh, uh, you know, right after that, late 70s, early 80s, uh, they went back and we keep calling it neoliberalism, but it's not neo. It's the same old liberalism. And then, you know, they had this huge success where they where they supposedly defeated or, you know, they outdid uh, the USSR and then they then they built the EU. But. But where are we now? You know, uh, I'm hopeful that the Yellow Vest show that we are starting a new chapter. You know, it's not it's not the World War One, World War Two chapter. Well, you know, it's not the French Revolution and Napoleon. It's not a, you know uh, the generation of 1848. It's not the generation of the Paris Commune. It's not the generation of World War One and World War Two. It's not the generation of uh, the you know 30 glorious 30 glorious years, 45 to 75. And we are hopefully no longer. Uh, soon in the generation of this third restoration of liberalism because it just just keeps failing. I'm not I'm not against liberalism on, you know, out of just spite. But, you know, I think the one thing that I kind of bring to the table is is the point of view of the daily hard news journalist, where it's every day I'm talking to people, average person on the street, you know, and I'm talking to, of course, you know, uh, you know, analysts and, you know, think tanks. But, you know, 12, 13 years, we have to be saying, you know, these these yellow vests have to they have to say something. They may not you know, they didn't win. It's you know, France was in a was in a revolutionary situation, but they're really not anymore. But what they will hopefully say is that we are moving away from liberalism because we just have to look over at, over at China and see that since 2008, how they have ascended. And it's because socialist democracy is fundamentally different from liberal democracy. The yellow vest proved that and the French have been, you know, proven that since 1848. So if you want to talk about Iran, I'm, I'm certainly happy to, you know. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the Islamic revolution in Iran. And, you know, here in the West, 
it's usually portrayed as being purely theocratic and quite often you even you know hear this analysis that oh these these wealthy landed mullahs sort of seized power and they're 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 the privileged and that this was a revolution really of the bourgeoisie and the privileged and so on and so forth and it's all based on this reactionary uh, religious ideology yada 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 and of course you know Foucault was one of the very few westerners who ever challenged that and saw that there was something actually new in this revolution but you know, maybe you can explain sort of the difference here between like with with the French Revolution. In many ways, that was an anti-religious re- revolution. You know, there are, there are these quote unquote conspiracy theories about the radically anti-religious Illuminati, perhaps even Satanist, whatever, uh, being behind it. And you had the expropriation of church property. Uh, and you know, Père Goriot by Balzac is a about a Cooper who makes a fortune because he's he's so stingy and so greedy that uh, he's able to play with this new money created by the confiscation of church property and become rich. And now he's just the new, you know, bourgeois. He's the new privileged guy uh, in the oligarchy and probably nastier than the old oligarchy ever was. And so a lot of people sort of see that as an example of failure of revolution. But in any case, that revolution was very much sort of against the the religious establishment. Now, with Iran, we have a pro-religious revolution. So maybe you can sort of explain why you know, the Westerners, you know, who would say, you know, would see this as like, OK, religion is always reactionary, uh, had to be overthrown in 1789. And, and now it's, it's come back in Iran. And uh, and and that's, you know, it's very right wing and reactionary, blah, blah, blah. So what are those people getting wrong? You know, there's a lot to unpack there. But what you're saying is uh, is right. And I, you know, to just kind of uh, be quick about it, I guess, the, you know, to just be succinct about it, rather, I would just say they these are not two comparable situations. You're absolutely right. The French Revolution, they dispossessed the Roman Catholic Church, and that provided, you know, uh, this the uh, the stability for the revolution. It really, you know, provided this, you know, the, the creation of this new middle class. And uh, at the same time, the uh, the you know almost complete repression of you know you know shutting down churches was uh, the biggest mistake uh, domestically. Uh, it led to civil war for ten years, and one of Napoleon's you know one of his major achievements is to was the Concordat, which was to end the you know religious civil war with within France. Now, so you know the Roman Catholic Church in France. They were these, you know, huge landowners and they were very wealthy and they were, you know, really out of touch with the people. OK, it's not the same thing in Iran. All all religions are not the same. This is this sort of painting everything with one brush is is going to lead people uh, into into error, as it always does, as stereotypes always do. In 1979, Iran, the church didn't have power. The revolution of 1979 is basically, first of all, uh, well, let, let me just say it put the average mullah, okay, you can, it gave them more power. Here's, you know, the news flash. The average mullah is, is lower middle class. And it's, it, that's kind of true, you know, very much today, uh, but it was in, incredibly true. So, uh, you, you know, back in 1979. So it's not like the... The church was on the side of the people in 1979, Iran. The church, uh, 
it was not on the side of the people in 1789 France. So it's two very, 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 uh, you know, uh, very different things. And people just don't want to, you know, accept on the left in in the West. And it's usually Trotskyists, you know, they're the ones who say that, they, you know, who, who create this fiction that it was the bourgeois Shia, uh, Shia uh, leadership that, you know, took power. Absolutely not. Uh, you know, this is it's just no Iranian would would, would possibly agree with this. Uh, and then so, you know, you know, com comparing those two, it's really so, 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 so very, so, so very incorrect uh, historically. But then what also people in the Western left, uh, generally Trotskyists, but of course, lots of people, what they don't want to accept is that the mosque was the center of the revolutionary movement. It wasn't the leftist, you know, students, you know, for example, you know, in the 60s in the West, it was the students that were, you know, somewhat revolutionary. So they assume it was the same thing in Iran. Here's the problem. In 1979, Iran, only 5% of the country was middle class or above. That's how unequal it was. You know, the revolution is known in Iran as the revolution of the barefooted because uh, you know, it was done by the lower classes who couldn't even afford shoes. So you're talking about 90 plus percent of the country in a very religious country, you know, and the absolute center of revolutionary activity was not the students. It was not the universities. They were important. Sure. But, you know, we're, you know, that's not the overwhelming mass of the country. So. The uh, in the French Revolution, it was it was about evenly split, they say, you know, uh, in the Roman Catholic Church. You had about half of half of these, you know, average uh, priests that would take and take an oath to support the revolution. I'm talking about in the 1790s. Uh, and then half of them refused. In Iran, it was much more overwhelming uh, for uh, for the average mullah to be pro-revolution because you know, they were fighting against, you know, basically an absolute, absolute monarch who, you know, was using spy services and who was abusing the wealth of the country. It's, they, it's 1979, 1979, Iran is simply not comparable to the 60s of uh, 60s of France, 60s of the United States. And it's also not comparable to 1789 France. And and these are these are two very, very different things. I guess the last thing I'll say, because I don't want to take up, you know, just go on and on. Uh, the difference in 1979 for the average person compared with their socioeconomic status in uh, 2022 for the average Iranian is night and day. There is no compare. There's no doubt that were the Iranian Islamic Revolution to be toppled, it would be done by counter revolutionaries. The improvements in health education, rights, everything, you know, you can think of that, you know, the USSR did, that Cuba did, that China has done, uh, you know, that these progressive revolutions were able to achieve. It's the exact same thing in Iran because, the, it, it, because all these revolutions, they are progressive. They are breaking with monarchy. They are breaking with elitism. Liberalism does not break with monarchy. They accommodate them. Seven out of 27 countries in the EU have monarchies. You know, uh, post-1917, uh, all these revolutions, they, they, they put the bottom of the pyramid on top, and that's why they endure. That's why 
Iran is still going on. You know, one thing I think that you said that you want me to to talk about is what's going on with the protest now, because everything we hear. Yeah, let, let's cover that in our last. We have about four minutes left. I hear you. Uh, you know, I'll just tell you, you know, what 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 I know from talking with, you know, people in Iran and working for press TV and going on uh, Iranian social media. I mean, so, you know, being just, you know, your basic journalist. Uh, the first week there, you know, there were some some very, very spirited protests. But then after that, it was really it really died down and things really went went back to normal. And people are going to be surprised. They're going to say, but Romney, it's been going on for three months. Let me tell you, because Iran is in that in that short history of progressive popular revolutions, just like in China, just like in, just like in Cuba. If you can get 200 people to protest in, in China, Cuba, Iran, the Western, the liberal, you know, Western liberalist media is going to inflate it into, oh, it's almost over. We've been talking about how Cuba is about to collapse and how their ideas are terrible. We've been talking about how China is just, you know, for so long, they're on the cusp of implosion, of failure. Here we are here. Here, you know, here we are. Finally, it's just not sustainable at all. So they're, are they exaggerating what's going on in Iran the same way they exaggerated uh, Tiananmen Square, for example? Exactly. And then at the same time, you know, if you could get on Iranian social media, you can see viral videos of, uh, you know, people who are suspected of being plainclothes officers being set on fire. You can see so-called protesters firing wildly into a crowd. You can see protesters, uh, you know, posing as uh, posing as police. And we know that they're not police because they have tattoos and you can't have tattoos in Iran and be in the police. So so not only are they exaggerating the purity and the honesty and, the, you know, you know, of these, you know, protesters, they're exaggerating the size of the protesters. And they're also not talking about the nefarious side of it. Last thing I should say, because it's important, I think, you know, there's no Mossad, there's no, you know, Iranian, uh, you know, uh, spy agency, secret services in France, in the Yellow Vests. There is a, a there, but in Iranian protests, in Cuban protests, in Chinese protests, we we know that Western nations are pouring in guns, support. They're giving training. So just imagine how the yellow vest would have would have turned out if foreign countries had played a role in arming them, in fomenting them. And of course, that's what they say. You know, here in the United States, they say that Russia is the one who's meddling in our in our. Uh, in our elections, it's really just rather preposterous. So all these things that you're hearing about Iran, it's it's not going to happen. I mean, you know, this counter revolution that some people want 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 uh, want to happen. The problem is, is that the Iranian Islamic Revolution has been so successful in giving economic and political and cultural power to the working class and the working poor class, and they, you know. They they don't want to you know they don't want to create a counter revolution they want to create a a a a civil war which is what they need to then impose a counter revolution and Iranians they are willing to fight in the streets uh, to not let that happen. So it's another uh, CIA backed regime change kind of scenario. Uh, they're bringing chaos. They're trying to bring chaos to Iran like they did to Syria, like like they did yeah. to Ukraine in 2014. 
Yes, just like Ukraine, and you know what, what you hear all the time among Iranians uh, is that we are not another Syria, and it's not going to be another Syria. But Syria was not as wealthy as Iran in terms of oil wealth, and they were not as you know blessed geographically. Uh, you know, Iran is you know I you know I tell you know my fellow Muslims I don't want to brag. Iran has got oil, and they're far from Europe. They're far from the West. Okay, and, and uh, in, inshallah, they will prevail. All right, well, thank you so much, Raleen Mazadari. It's great to have you. Uh, your Francis Yellow Vest uh, book is excellent, highly recommended. Keep up the great work. Thank you for listening to Revolution.